You know, one of the things I keep discovering is that you never reach a stage in your life uh, that you don't hear, see something new in God's word, not just for the sake of novelty, but something that hits you that you've seen many times before. Uh, and yet it hits you with fresh power. It happened to me this past week as I was studying for this message on goodness, uh, which is the next fruit of the Spirit. Now, if you're particularly observant, you look at me and say, just a minute, what happened to kindness? Well, that's something else that I discovered in my study this week, that it was very hard to separate between kindness and goodness and put them into neat little categories so that each one of them deserved a sermon by itself. And actually, when I looked at the scriptures, they themselves reinforced this almost inseparable connection between the two. For example, in this text in Luke chapter 6 from Jesus' words, but love your enemies and do good. So it's all about doing good and lend. In this particular case, the expectation of giving, or the good work of giving, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful. It doesn't say do good, because you will be like your Father, who's kind. <laughs> or he, and not only does He say be kind, and then you will be like your Father, who's kind. He says, you do good, and you will be like your Father, who is kind. So obviously the goodness is a clear expression of the kindness of God. And even more specifically, in Titus chapter 3 verse 4, it says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, the Greek word translated goodness in Titus 3 4 is the precise word translated kindness in Galatians chapter 5 verse 22. So obviously goodness and kindness in scriptures are very, very closely linked together. And so both of those things are going to be covered today. If you want to get a handle just for practical purpose and difference, think of kindness as the heart dimension or the heart disposition out of which the goodness flows and does. Because goodness in the New Testament in the Bible is an, is an action word. Good is equated mostly with doing. Although we also use good in terms of a person's character. The opening chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, is God at work. <laughs> He's creating. And what he creates, he says, is good, you know. The goodness of God, or the, the word of God, did the, the work of God in creating something that was good. In Jesus' famous words in that parable of the people who were given the talents, the one who was faithful, he says, well done, good and faithful servants. So the doing and the goodness are put together. In fact, in the New Testament, I found the phrase doing good happened, occurred 22 times. And the interesting thing was, more than 50% of the time, it's in the three pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, which means doing good has everything to do with a congregation and a pastor. Is that interesting that a huge proportion of that happens in the context of the pastoral epistles? So this is something that, according to the scriptures, pastors and people should be engaging themselves with. And really, this morning... Uh, you're going to be exposed to a lot more of scripture than I normally have in a, in, a, in a text. In fact, all the preaching books tell you you shouldn't be doing that. But that's what I'm going to do today because that's what struck me. Uh, most of the verses are so obvious. They don't need explanations or careful exegesis. They're just obvious to us. It was the cumulative effect that I want to somehow communicate to you today. So I want to begin with what are the good works. Now, these are maybe obvious, but still they're good. Uh, just for the purpose of uh, completion. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. And then in three verses later, because she, Peter had come to minister to her because she was dead. And says, all the widows stood around her beside him, Jesus, weeping, or Peter, and showing 
tunics and other garments that Dorcas made. So obviously what the good works that this widow was doing along with other widows was to put together and stitch garments and tunics and whatnot and give them away to people. So the acts of charity were very practical. And you know, uh, last night in our congregation there was an individual who because of physical limitations can't do a whole lot, but they have a gift in stitching. (laughs) And they do this kind of work. And on the way out she said, this was so encouraging to me. And I hope that for some of you today, this message will come across as an affirmation of the good works that you're already doing. And that's important too, for you to continue to be doing that as well. So there's an obvious good work, working with your hands, producing things that other people need, and you give them away to them. And then in Galatians chapter 6, which is the word chapter after the chapter in which we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, he says, let the one who is taught in the word share all good things with the one who teaches. This is a responsibility of the congregation to care for their pastors, the ones who are feeding them the word of God. And you know, this is a good opportunity for me to thank all of you as a congregation. For all the years that I've been here and all the other pastors that have been here, you've been very good to us in taking care of our practical needs. And that's what you should be doing, you know. Because those are part of the good works that you are called to do. Now, in return, or on the other side of the equation, what are the good works that the pastors are supposed to do? At least one of them, uh, touches close to home for me, is Paul says in uh, Timothy, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the pastor's responsibility, especially those who are teaching is to so engage with God's word that that word of God equips them to do the work of teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that we ourselves will be equipped with good works and then you will be equipped uh, and, and mature as well. Now, precisely because some of this involves correction and reproof, which is also part of the good works. You know, Good works aren't just always the thing that make people feel good. It's part of the good work to reprove and correct as well. That's why kindness is so important. Because that reproof has to be done still with kindness. In Second Timothy, Paul says this. He said, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach. So in the teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, there needs to be kindness. Beth Moore puts it beautifully when she says, the disposition of kindness governs the dispensing of goodness. The disposition of kindness is to govern the dispensing of goodness. Now, if a congregation is doing its work and taking care of their pastors well, and the pastors are doing the job of being equipped by the word of God to teach and rebuke and correct and train in righteousness, then look what happens to a congregation as a whole. They grow towards maturity. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And he, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastor teachers, or the shepherd teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. In the, in the Greek, it's the word ergon, which is, which is what governs the good works we're talking about, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so that's your good work. A huge part of your good work of a congregation is to use the gifts that God has given to you. And part of our good work is to equip you to find those good works and gifts and then use them so that the entire body begins to grow. That's a huge part of your good work. Paul continues to talk about that in Second, First Corinthians chapter 12. Now there are varieties of gifts for the same spirit, varieties of service for the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, ergon again, I think works, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. There it is again. The, your works 
of service through the gifts of the Spirit are for the common good and they build up the body. And as this happens together, congregation and pastors doing their work, of doing good works to each other, an entire congregation moves to maturity. Now we're not only to do this for one another, we're to love our enemies in the same way as well. Jesus says in Luke 6.27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. So this is a hugely important part of the good work, which is very difficult, yet it's happening today. Here's a testimony from some Lebanese pastors uh, ministering to Syrians who are coming into Lebanon, have been for the last couple of years. Uh, Rupin and Mamta Das from our congregation are involved very much in this work, and their blogs just give you a whole lot of insight into this stuff. Let me just read an excerpt. This is a Lebanese pastor. He said, their people, the Syrians, killed our people, burned our houses, stole our harvest, and destroyed our economy. They occupied our land for more than 30 years. Our hearts were filled with hatred and enmity. Now it's their turn to pay the price. We had prayed for God to take our revenge. Not exactly this kind of prayer. To destroy their land as they did to our land. To sink their country with blood and tears. This is what's happening now. Shouldn't we be thrilled? No, but something strange has happened. Where are those negative feelings that we had? Our hearts are aching for their pain. Our prayers are continuous for their country. Our church is working day and night to help them, to heal their wounds, to wipe their tears, and feed their children. We are serving 700 families now. We are visiting them one by one, trying to help with both hands, spiritually and physically. Thank God for the generous partners and for the wonderful and burdened team who are serving with love. That's doing good works. This is exactly what Jesus said he is empowering his church to do as well. So you kind of step back and these are... Some of the good works, doing things with your hands, giving them away, caring for the poor, caring for the suffering, pastors and congregations working together, teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, people serving one another, and blessing and loving our enemies as well. Well, As I told you, this isn't rocket science. You could have said all of that. You didn't need a sermon to point that out to you. So this morning as we were singing, I I felt I needed to stop at this point and just ask you to reflect for about 30 seconds to a minute on one of two questions. What good works are you already doing that God is affirming to you to continue doing them? Because many of you are. Or maybe in this very brief review, he might be saying to you, here's a good work I'd like you to add or a good work I'd like you to stretch. Or a good work I'd like you to start doing again because you stopped. So just take a minute or two. Just think about it. What, what might he be saying? What is he affirming in you? What might he be asking you to stretch or to recover in a concrete good work that could be any one of these things we've talked about? Okay, I want to move on from here to take a look at this central core of what really struck me in my study, and that is the import. I was aware of good works. I simply wasn't aware of the cumulative impact of the number of verses dealing with this subject and how strongly we are exhorted to do good works. So let me just talk about the importance of good works for a minute. Galatians 6, back again to our main text. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. 
So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. There's four things in this text, four or five things actually. First of all, let's not grow weary. The word weary means to grow dispirited, to lose heart, to just kind of do this because you have to. Don't let that happen, he said. Secondly, don't give up. This is not something that you dabble in for a little while and you'll come up against that again. Thirdly, as we have opportunity, that's the word kairos, there are seasons, there are opportunities, there are occasions. Don't let them pass by. And Cheryl and I were talking about, about the number of times opportunities come up to do good works. That nobody may be aware of if we skip over them. So don't do that. Seize the opportunity. Fourthly, to everybody. But fifthly, especially to those who are believers, to the household of faith. Five things that talks about in this text. Don't go weary, don't give up, seize the opportunity to everybody and especially to those who are believers. And he continues. First Thessalonians 5.15 See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Here the word for seek is the word translated pursue. It's often used negatively of people who are seeking out to persecute other people. And you know how, especially in religious zeal, when people persecute others, how they are seeking out for people. And where the world is full of things like that. He says, you need to seek out, not just do it when the opportunity comes, actually seek out opportunities to do good to everyone. And he goes one step further, First Timothy 6.17. As for the rich in this present age, which is all of us in a North American context, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. While the primary application of good works here is giving, I think the focus here for me is that we are called to be rich in good works. In other words, when we do good, let's not be measly. Let's not do the minimum amount of good that we can do, whatever that good work is. Let us be rich in doing those good works for one another. So important was this that this was used as a criterion for which widow should be helped in the New Testament church. Look at 1 Timothy 5.9. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years uh, let a widow be enrolled if she should be, should be, she is less than 60 years of age, and having a reputation for good works, and later it says having devoted herself to every good work. Now you know how much impetus, importance the scriptures put on caring for widows and orphans. Yet it's interesting, there was important criterion in the early church. And two of the criterion were, this widow that needs help, by the way, whoever, whichever widows had families, it was a family's responsibility to look after them first. The church was to help those who had no family of their own. But look at the criterion. Does this person have a reputation for good works? And not just doing good works occasionally. Have they devoted themselves to every good work? What, what does all that tell us? It tells us this is not just something incidental in the New Testament. This is central, of central importance to us. Let's continue. This was the text. If there's one chapter, by the way, Titus chapter 3, reinforce it over and over again. He says, who gave himself, Jesus, for us to redeem us and to purify himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Now, in other words, you have to pursue it, you have to seek it. He kind of hammers it home to us, who are eager and desiring of good works. Remind them to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Now, readiness has to do with seizing the opportunity. Remember he said, use every opportunity. Now, there's a mental alertness when it comes to doing good work. Remind them to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And then he goes on to say in verse 8, The saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And by the way, if you're not careful, better learn it. He says in verse 14, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good work. So it's not dabbling. It's not just the occasional good works to keep our consciences okay. It's a matter of devoting ourselves. Setting our entire life. And if we're not good at it, let's learn, learn it. Doesn't matter if you're not good, so long as you're willing to learn, is what he's saying here. 
Now, precisely because it's a matter of devoting ourselves and not dabbling, we all need help in this area. So here's another verse in the New Testament, Hebrews 10.24. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. So we have a responsibility as a congregation. If there are people in our midst and we are aware that they're doing none of these good works, if their lives are not, we've got to stir them up. Now, it says consider how to do it. <laughs> in other words, everybody doesn't get stirred up the same way, which is one of the huge shortfall, uh, the limitations in a sermon setting. Because the way I present something may not impact all of you equally. Some of you may get really stirred up by the way I preach. Way over the other end of the spectrum, there are people who just don't get anything from what I preach. And then everything in, in between. So this perhaps works even better in small groups. It works even better in triads, in one-on-one settings, where you actually can carefully consider what is the best way to motivate this person to do good works. But nonetheless, it is a job of a pastor, because earlier on in that text in in Titus, he said, remind the people, insist on these things. Those are the kind of things that hit me hard. I'm supposed to stir you up. By teaching, by rebuking, by correcting. And I'm supposed to insist on this. That you do good works. But by the way, my words alone aren't sufficient. Because Titus also says to the pastor, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity. The primary way in which God will judge me and evaluate me when it comes to good works is whether I have engaged in 1 Timothy 3 carefully. Whether I have so engaged with the word of God that it teaches me, it rebukes me, it corrects me, and it trains me in righteousness. And then out of what it does in my life, with integrity and dignity and seriousness, I need to be communicating that to you. That's what you have every right to expect from me. To the extent that I'm doing it, it will be a model and an encouragement for you. In your own good works, which may or may not have anything to do with my good works, because we are all uniquely wired, gifted in various ways. To the extent that I'm not doing these things, you have a right and a responsibility to come to me and say, Hey Sundar, We're not sensing too much passion in your preaching these days. I haven't seen you. You're actually acting in a way different from what you're preaching. That's okay. It's important for you to do that if a pastor is not doing his work properly in this area. And by the way, if you're not convinced about the importance of this yet, look what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to the faithful creator while doing good. We're supposed to keep doing good even when we're suffering. We may have no choice over whether we suffer or not. In fact, we don't. That's God's sovereign disposition. And so, when we suffer, we are to entrust our souls to a faithful creator. But we do not suspend doing good. Psalm 37 picks it up beautifully when it says this, Fret not yourself. Fretting is interesting, right? I used to work when I was a kid. My uncle used to teach me carpentry with plywood. And we didn't use a big, big saw. We used a little hacksaw. And it mostly cut by fretting, by rubbing over and again. So fretting isn't something explosive. It's irritations that keep coming your way. He said, don't fret yourself because of evildoers. This world is full of evildoers. All the time we're reading reports and we can get all worked up about it. And hot under the collar may be a good expression of fretting. What does he say? He said, don't do that. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. You trust in the Lord and do good. Fretting takes energy. And what he says is redirect the energy of fretting into doing good works. Uh, illustration from a surprising area. Uh, back to my own Red Sox team. 15, 20 years ago, they had a third baseman named Wade Box, who was considered the best two-strike hitter in all of baseball. Now, Box wasn't exactly known for his goodness off the field. 
In fact, some people used to call him a sleaze bag. But here's a beautiful illustration once of, of this exactly, of redirecting fretting to doing good works. And you never know what will happen. Well, Boggs apparently never liked to go to Yankee Stadium. Not because of the team, because they never gave him much trouble. He hit that pitch as well. But because of a fan, a single fan. This guy had a box seat close to third base where Boggs used to play. And apparently he took it upon himself whenever the Red Sox were in town to torment Boggs by yelling obscenities and insults. It is hard to imagine one fan getting under the skin of a baseball player, but this man succeeded. One day, just before the game, as Boggs was warming up, this guy was in his front seat and he was beginning yelling out statements like, Hey, Boggs, you stink, and things like that. Boggs decided he had enough one day. So he walked right up to the stand with this guy where he says, Hey, are you the guy who's been yelling all these things at me? And of course, in typical Yankee Stadium fashion, he says, Yes, I am, and what are you going to do about it? Boggs took out a new baseball, signed it, tossed it to the guy, and walked away and went back to his pregame routine. He said the man never yelled at Boggs again. In fact, he became one of his biggest fans at Yankee Stadium. To be a Red Sox fan at Yankee Stadium, that's suicide. (laughs) All because of one act of kindness. He changed the energy of fretting and redirected it to do some good work. And you never know what the result is that comes from that. Okay, so I just trust that taking all of these things together has given you some idea of how important this is. It's not just the fact that it are good works. We're called to not grow weary, we're called to not give up, we're called to be zealous, we're called to seek after it, we're called to be careful to devote ourselves to it, we're called to not dabble in these good works, we're called to do it even to our enemies, and we're called to do it even when we are suffering. That's what's hit me. This is big deal. The good works. Now why? Why is it so important? Jesus says in Matthew 5.16, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. So one of the reasons why this is so good is that God is worshipped and glorified as a result of this. And one of the most common ways in which people will see glorify God is by themselves becoming followers of Jesus. Back to that Lebanese pastor. What's happening as a result of all this work? He says, many of the families are now coming to church on a regular basis. Many have given their lives to our Lord and Savior. And we repeatedly hear this word, we had a totally wrong idea about Christianity. All, not by preaching primarily, but by the good works that were being done in there. So that's one obvious way in which uh, the uh, doing of good works brings glory to God. It's also important for a second reason that we have actually been saved in order to do good work. This is part of God's purpose in creating and redeeming. Look at Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship. There it is again. He didn't just create the world. He created us. We are his part of his good work. Created in Christ Jesus. And therefore it involves both creation and redemption. For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, you and I as followers of Jesus, if we consider ourselves followers of Jesus, we have been created and redeemed by God to do these various kinds of good works and they've already been prepared for us and we need to be stepping into those good works. That's part of God's intention for you and for me as Christ followers. There are prepared works for us and we need to step into it. Now this raises an important question. What if there are no good works in our lives? In the light of this verse, do we not have to conclude that there have been none prepared for us? And if there had been none prepared for us, what that means is we're not not redeemed by God. 
That's a very troubling possibility. And you say, don't you think that's going too far? Well, not really, because James talks about this in chapter 2, verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, this relationship of faith and good works is important. I'm told that Martin Luther was so upset with James, he didn't want to have it in his Bible, because he thought it was contrary to what the Romans teaches about being justified by faith. Which we are, because in that same text in Ephesians, one verse before that it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one boasts. So we are not saved by our good works, we are saved for our good works. And if I can put it for you in the form of a couple of equations, I think that might help stick with you. Because it's a semi-visual important. See, many people think that faith, works, and salvation are related with this equation. That salvation is equal to faith and works. So we have to believe. We believe God will believe in Jesus. And then we have to produce some works so that we can be acceptable to a holy God. And somehow we make the passing great. This is all religion. Every religion in the world, including the Christian religion, fits into this mold. Salvation is equal to faith and works. And this produces legalism. What's the right relationship between them? Move one of them to the other side. It's this way. Faith is equal to salvation and works. That's the way you need to look at it. So salvation comes only by faith. There's nothing else that contributes to our salvation except faith. But the faith that produces salvation also produces works. This one saves us some license. Because if you remove works from this equation, say, well, I've been saved by faith. And there are no works. That's license. So the first one warns us against legalism and the second one tells us that if you eliminate works from this, it's license. Yes, we are saved only by faith. Totally apart from works. But the faith that truly saves is a faith that always results in good works because we have been prepared and saved for the good works and the good works have been prepared for you and for me. Okay, so we're taking some time to look at what the good works are. We've been confronted with scripture that underlines the importance of good works and we've seen why they are so important I want to just kind of finish like I do with every one of these messages okay how do we pull it off where does the power for good works come from and it always comes from God right that's what we're learning Jesus said apart from you I can do you can do nothing the branch has to abide in the vine and then the power of the vine goes through the branches and we bear the fruit And we've learned that there are two ways in which we abide. We abide as his word abides in us. And we abide in prayer. So let me just unpack that, those two things for us first of all. So when it comes to the matter of doing good, in the way that we've been asked to do good, with zeal, being ready and being enthusiastic and seeking out and not giving up and not grow weary. Because it's not just the doing of the good works, it's the way in which we're called to do them as well. What kind of scripture needs to stay at the forefront? What scripture needs to abide within us? I know for me which one it is. And this is what I've been rehearsing all week. First uh, Timothy 3. I have to make sure that I'm regularly engaging with the word of God. And this morning in my prayer time, reading from John 5, it was just underlined for me all over again. Jesus said, my words are spirit, my words are life. You know, you think the scriptures testify of me, but you won't come to me, you know. And that's what my call. That's the, those are the texts of scripture that I've got to keep before me all the time. 
that I am to let the word of God teach me, rebuke me, correct me, and train me in righteousness so I will be equipped for every good work. That when I stand here in the pulpit, I'm coming having exercised myself unto godliness that way. And then I have to keep those words from Titus before me. Remind your people, insist on this, and above all, don't forget Sundar, you have to be a model in these areas. Those are the scriptures that have to stay close to me. For you, maybe you need to remember Ephesians 2.10, that you have been created and redeemed for good works that God has prepared beforehand for you. Maybe some of you who are suffering need to remember 1 Peter chapter 4 and, and Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and dwell in the land and do good. Maybe those of you who have been blessed with a tremendous amount of material resources need to remember 1 Timothy chapter 6 that you need, they are given there for you to be rich in good works. So each one of us has different portions of scripture that we need to keep close and at hand and accessible to us. And all of us need to remember Galatians chapter 6. Be ready for every good work. Don't grow weary of doing well. Seek opportunities to do good. Pursue good works. Be zealous for good works. Devote yourself to good works. All of us need to remember all of those as well. And you know it was interesting this week Doing good works has been a lot easier for me than any other week. Why is that? Because I've been in the word relating to that, right? That's exactly, I think, how it works. If the word is close at a hand to us and abides with us, it has an amazing ability to produce the fruit. And I didn't even have to think about it. I was thinking about the word. And so you need to ask God, what, what portions of scripture from all that you've looked at do I need to keep in mind? Ready and at hand. That will help me to seize the good work opportunity. And then to actually do it. And then secondly of course we're called to pray. Colossians 1, 9 and 10 again. And so from the day we heard of you says Paul. We have not ceased to pray for you. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing to him. Bearing fruit in every good work. And increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what Paul prays. And so, good works will be produced in us as a result of God working in us while we pray. And when we pray, when we pray, we can remind Him of other portions of Scripture where He has promised to do this good work within us. For example, Philippians 1.6 I am sure of this, that He who began a good work, notice this, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. When we became followers of Jesus, that was the beginning of a good... Actually, God began that work before the foundation of the work. But it became real in our lives at a particular moment in time. That was the beginning of God's good work and the promises that He's going to finish it. Which means in our prayers, we can be really bold. In our prayers, we can insist, God, I'm your follower. I couldn't even be your follower without you doing this, beginning this good work in me. So I can ask you confidently to finish what you started in me. God finishes what He starts. And we can hold Him to it. Here's another promise that we can. How does God do His work? Look at 2 Corinthians 9. So many of the songs were about grace so appropriately this morning. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. I mean, notice the comprehension, folks. All sufficiency, all things, all times, and every. This is why we don't have to be afraid of those verses in Galatians and Titus which says, be ready. Don't give up. Devote yourself. Seize the opportunity. Do good to everyone. Really God, how can I do it? Grace. 
There is enough grace that I can pour into you if you will only ask me for it. There will, you will be sufficient to do all, 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 all and every. So let's hold him to it. We don't have to glory in our own abilities. We have none. But we can glory in his promises. That no matter what is the good work that I've officially said before you. What is the good work that I've prepared for you. What is the good work I've called you to do. To be devoted to. You ask me for that grace. And I will pour that grace into your life. That's how he does it. And then here's another one we can pray. Second Thessalonians 2.16 Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God the Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. There's grace again. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work. This is how we can devote rather than be dabble. God will establish our hearts in it. So that our hearts can stand. How? By grace. In other words, there's no limit to what we can ask him to do for us. That's how he wants us to live. Let his word abide within us and let that abiding word fuel prayer. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 15? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will. But what we will will be good works. What we will will be what he's promised to bless us. And so we can hold him totally and confidently to his word. Let me just step back as I draw this message to a close. We began by looking at the fact that kindness and goodness are very closely linked together in scripture. And then we marched our way through uh, four dimensions of this. What the good works are. How important they are. Why they are so important. And how how do we bring them about in our lives through the word and prayer. What I'd like to do is to finish with something else that struck me in the study. And I want to finish with God. We started, we started with an extensive time of focusing on God and Jesus in our worship today. I want to end with a picture of God as good and kind. A good and a kind God that struck me. It's from the story of Abraham. Uh, again, for the benefit of those of you who don't know, and by way of reminder for those who do, Abraham is the father of our faith, and he was called to leave his country, and God promised to take him to a land, and he said, I'll give you a land as an inheritance, and I'll give you a seed from which a nation will come. Well, 11 years passed. He was in the land. He still didn't own a piece of real estate there. And he didn't have any children. And so at the insistence of his wife, Sarah, he did something that was customary in the ancient Near East at that time. And that is for someone to have a child through his wife's handmaid, uh, Hagar, in this case. And Ishmael was born. Now, of course, as soon as she got pregnant, uh, Sarah got all angry and upset, as you could well expect, and drove her out. Well, as you pick up the story, God sees, speaks to her. Just asks her a question. And by the way, whenever God asks a question, it's because he doesn't know the answer. He kind of wants us to spell things out, you know, so that we get to know the answer a bit better. So he said, hey God, where are you going? Well, I'm running away. Well, you don't run back. And this is what he says to her. He says, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitudes. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. You know what struck me? I'd never, I knew the story so well, I'd never seen it before. Up till now in Genesis, Abraham regularly named God out of every new experience he had. He gave names to God. So this God of the Old Testament that he was discovering, he was introducing to you and me. Abraham, the patriarch, named the various dimensions of God. This time, it was a heathen woman Outside the covenant, a slave girl who's introducing us to who God is. She gets to name him. She gets to name him. And, she, and what does she name him? This God is a God who notices me. 
So we have a God who notices a slave woman outside the covenant community who got into trouble just for doing what she had no choice but to do because she was a slave. Here's a God who looks after me. What a beautiful name of God. That's the goodness and kindness of God at work. And listen, is there somebody here who feels that right now you're not being noticed? He sees you. You're not important enough to be noticed. No, no, no. You are the Hagar is just as important as Abraham was. And you are just as able to reveal God to the world. <laughs> because he is a God who sees you. Well, the story doesn't end there. It gets even more remarkable. So she does go back. The child is born. Another 13 years pass. By now, this child is a teen. Young teenager. And this time, God in faithfulness has promised, does give Sarah a son. Isaac, and when Isaac is weaned, they throw a huge party, and there this older teen just mocks this young child. I don't know exactly what was happening. This text doesn't say that to us. So Sarah sees that, gets really angry and upset, and says, you got to drive them both out. So we pick up the story a little bit later here. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba, When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about a distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. Probably every mother's greatest, greatest tragedy. To actually watch one of her children die before her. I think this is a story only mothers can really, really enter into in a way that fathers cannot. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, because obviously he must have been crying too. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Again, remember, he knows the answer. Hagar had to voice it. Fear not. And we sang that too a few moments ago. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. The same slave woman that he noticed. Enough to reveal himself to her the way he had revealed himself to a patriarch. He noticed her again. He says, no, you won't have to go through your greatest fear. He's not going to die. But I also love this other part. He doesn't have a father. That's okay. I'm going to be with him. That's what it says here. God was with the boy when he grew up. What an incredible story of the kindness and the goodness of God. Especially to mothers who have known this kind of difficulty in their lives. So I want to finish by reading for you something that uh, Beth Moore wrote about this particular thing. Uh, And I trust it will come as a huge encouragement to the mothers here. Talking about God's concern for Hagar. says, God knew that one day he would face the intense pain of separation from his son. Was he even now anticipating the torment of watching his son die? Knowing that he would have to turn his back on his child even as he cried out, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And mothers, listen. Because of Jesus, if you have a child who was rejected by his peers, God knows how you feel. If you have a child who is not beautiful to look upon, he knows how you feel. If you have a child who has been betrayed by her friends, he knows how you feel. If you have a child who has begged you to fix something you could not fix, he knows how you feel. If you have a child who is suffering, he knows how you feel. If you have a child who is dying, he knows how you feel. If you have buried a child, he knows how you feel. He's been there too. However, there's one big difference. He could have changed every bit of it if he wanted to. 
but he didn't because of you and because of me. If you're a hurting mother right now, allow God to open your eyes as he did Hagar so long ago. Let him refresh you at the well of living water. Like Hagar, your child may be totally restored to you. Or like the trusting but broken-hearted mother Mary, you may have to let your child go. You who are seen by a kind and good God, do not give up. Once you have a glimpse of God's tender and kind heart, you will begin to understand that if he says no to a crying parent, it is because he's saying yes to your eternal kingdom good. Behold the goodness and the kindness of God. Just let that sink in for a moment as the worship team comes to lead us. A couple of weeks ago, um, Sham and I on a Monday morning, we were just talking about this particular message on goodness and kindness and I uh, just want to get her input. And once again, just she remembered something that she remembers all the time, especially on Mother's Day, that the greatest gift her mother ever gave to her was on a, on a situation that involved some relational challenges and stuff like that, watching how Sham was responding, she said to Sham, you have a good heart. She's never forgotten that. Four words of such incredible power to bless. And you know, I was thinking of that later on that day, and I was reminded of what the scripture says about every one of us who is a follower of Jesus. God has taken away a heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. <laughs> He has given you a new heart. If so, my dear brothers and sisters, you have a good heart. So I want to bless you with the good works that will flow out of that good heart. Go in Jesus' name. Amen.